Amelia Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Virtual reality is transforming storytelling and animation. Maureen Fan, CEO and co-founder of Baobab Studios, explains what VR is and its role in filmmaking. We talked about the technical challenges, how the team works, and how she evaluates VR experiences. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. I'm here at the Grace Hopper Conference with Maureen Fan, CEO and co-founder of Baobab Studios, a VR animation company. Maureen, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. When I think of VR, the first thing that comes to my head is immersive and interactive video games. Your company is an animation studio. Can you explain what VR animation and movies is all about? Yes. So my co-founder, Eric Darnell, is a writer and director of all four Madagascar films and also Ants. So he comes from more of the film background. Larry also, our CTO, comes from the film background. And I come from more of the gaming background. Um, I ran the Farmville franchise at Zynga for about six years. And the way we describe VR is not as a film or a game, but its own complete new medium. So imagine a little girl crying on a park bench, and she's there by herself. She's too young. If you see her crying in a film, you feel really bad for her, but you're not going to get out of your theater seat to do anything about it. If you see her in a game, you walk up and talk to her, but the motivation is to get information, to fulfill a quest, get to the next level to win. So it's more ego-driven because mm -hmm. it's a story of you. And if it's in real life, you go talk to her because you genuinely care about her and want to help her. And for VR, we have the potential to have the empathy of films with the story, the bigger-than-life stories, the agency of games, but the motivation of real life. Meaning now you can care about these characters because you see them in their story. Now you can do something about that caring. You can play a character and help them. But ideally, you're helping them because you genuinely care, not because you're trying to win. And so that's our creative vision for VR, at least at Baobab Studios. So it's not film or games. It's a bit of the best of all those worlds put together. But it is super challenging because when people are in a story, but you give them controllers, they just want to interact with everything, yeah. even though you want them to watch this particular thing. So it takes a lot of skill for the director to figure out how to make that balance and still get people to pay attention to the things you want them to pay attention to. So do you see it as a middle ground between the games and the movies where in the movies... For example, that uh, famous scene from Up where you get very emotional at the beginning, but you cannot do anything about it. And in games, you can affect the game. Could there potentially be a mixture in the movies where, depending if you react, the ending is different or something? Yes. For us, instead of doing branching narrative, we call it branching emotions. So, oh, okay. for example, in the first piece, we made you Invasion. So Invasion was our first piece ever. It just won the Emmy. And in that, you are a little furry bunny. You look down, you have a furry white bunny body. And people would say, oh my gosh, I have to protect this other bunny because I have a role to play. But when we released that, there were no controllers out yet. So all you could do is stand there, move around, and the other characters track you. Yeah. 
But then our second piece, Asteroids, we made you a tiny little robot character named Peas and your helper robot. So throughout this entire experience, you're aboard the spaceship of Mac and Cheese, the two aliens from Invasion, and you help them with their tasks throughout the day. But you keep on messing up because you're a menial task robot, but there are chances where if you continue to help, and you care about them, then by the end you save the day and you redeem yourself and they respect you in a different way. But you could have chosen not to help them. Mm -hmm. If you chose not to help them, they don't thank you at the end, they thank somebody else and your relationship with them has stayed the same, it hasn't improved. So you weren't able to fulfill your character arc, but your relationship with them changes rather than a completely different ending. This Just like life, like if that building's on fire, it's going to still burn whether or not you do something about it or not. Life is not going to turn into a walk cycle where it pauses until you do the right thing. Yeah, exactly. So the story keeps on going on, but you have a chance to walk into that stream of that river of story. And you brought up this movie, well, a short film, right? Invasion that won the Emmy Award. What were some of the technical challenges that you remember while you and the team were developing this film? For... Invasion, the most difficult thing was that it was nothing like we had ever done before, so we're experimenting. So things that Eric learned from film, for example, there's this one part where the spaceship comes over the trees, and he's like, oh, this is a great point to create dramatic tension, and I'm not going to have it come out. I'm just going to have this all this suspenseful music. But when we did that, people started looking around because they're like, oh, there's a pause. What do I do? So we learned to cut it and have it come out faster. Mm -hmm. But it was really challenging just to get things to run at 90 frames per second, right? Because usually if you're trying to render a frame of like say a Pixar films, you can have 11 days to render one frame if you want. And now you have to do it in 11 milliseconds twice, once for each eye. For our second piece, Asteroids, in um, making you a character, that was um, difficult because we now we're using techniques from cognitive psychology. So there's this phenomenon where if two people connect really well with each other, they start mirroring each other's movements subconsciously. Like if someone puts their head on their hand, the other person does it too. So we built in all this technology so that the other characters can mirror your movements to help build connection. And that required AI. <laughs> and okay. more complicated things. And then the last piece that we're, actually the piece that we're working on now, and we premiered a few minutes at Tribeca Film Festival, that one is called Rainbow Crow. And that one, uh, the look and feel of the story was very difficult to pull off because most of the times in VR or in games, you try to imitate reality and you go as like make shiny hard surfaces because it's easier to render. But we went the opposite way. We want to become more abstract and less realistic and make it feel like you're walking into a storybook, an art storybook. So creating the dithered pastel look so it's soft around all the edges mm -hmm. was really difficult. And we did it in Unity, especially since if you walk around the characters, it has to maintain the fuzziness and dithered look. Even when you walk from all angles, you can't just cheat it on the profile knowing that you're looking at it from one angle. Yeah, I really like that idea of making it look like a storybook versus real life. Sometimes I look at Pixar and I think, why do they go about making it look so realistic? They could just film it in real life, but I guess maybe it's more expensive to go in a helicopter and film those mountains and things <laughs> no, like that. No, it's actually way cheaper it <laughs> to is? do live action than to do animation. Okay. Because animation is such a huge team of people making that versus just capturing it. Okay. And you brought up an important point about rendering, which is the most computer-intensive part, I think. 
is it significantly longer in VR? Because like you mentioned, there's a two eyes. Yeah, it's really hard because if you go below 60 or 90 frames per second, you can make the audience dizzy. So it's very important that you maintain frame rate. And because again, you're doing it twice, both in one in each eye, it makes it even more difficult. And especially if you're using the mobile phone, so you can do a 360 pre-rendered on the phone, but if you want it to run real time on the phone, then you have you know, game quality things. And for my team coming from you know, Pixar, Disney, DreamWorks, but also Blizzard, they want this like very high quality animation running in real time. And anyone who works in games knows you can only have certain number of bones, certain number of polygons. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons, honestly, the VCs funded us is because of the technology we built to have higher quality animation run in a real time game oh, engine. Okay. But we are looking for a badass rendering engineer. So right. if any of you out there know, you will please let us know. Yeah. And I would love if, you know, there are more female candidates yes. as well for that yeah. position. That's awesome. And what was the duration of Invasion? Just curious. Invasion was uh, six minutes. Okay. Asteroids, um, starring Elizabeth Banks, is about 12 minutes, but it depends on how much you interact with it. Mm -hmm. And the latest Legend of Crow is going to be anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes. It's our longest piece. It's quite mm -hmm. ambitious. And just to get an idea for some of the Pixar movies, it can take... Five years. Five years for yeah. a two-hour movie? <laughs> 90 minutes, yes. Yeah. What about for this six-minute movie? How long, roughly? Invasion took about three and a half months with a skeleton team about 10 to 15. VR right now takes longer than uh, normal animation just because there's a lot more experimentation we need to do and we're building the tools along with the animation itself. Mm -hmm. But we, our team was able to do it faster. Oftentimes in animation, you measure it by um, seconds per animator or per, you know, how long it takes for an animator to do it. And we have been able to do it faster just because the experience level of the animators and all the talent that we have in our company. We specifically got more experienced people so that we can move faster. You got people that it was an easy transition to move to, right, from 3D animation to VR. It's, it's interesting because you're merging together the game industry and film industry, and those two industries are so different culturally, process-wise, everything about it. So actually the film people who came in had to definitely adjust to learn the gaming side of things and vice versa. And um, that honestly took a, a lot of adjustment for uh, people on both sides, but it's, it's definitely worth it because there's great things about both sides to bring to the table. Yeah, let's talk about that, about the topics that I mostly have featured in the show involve engineering teams at tech companies. This is very different than animation studio, but you say you brought people from gaming, people from film. What are the roles of this team to build a VR animation short? So we have a lot of the old traditional roles in film, but also games. So we have, you know, the game designer slash producer, you have the animators, the modelers, the riggers, the artists, but they need to be able to think in a slightly different way from both sides. So for example, the artists from 
film need to think about how this would be in 3D. They need to think about the entire space, not just art directing to one specific frame. They need to take into account the fact that the game engine can only handle a certain number of polygons, so maybe more graphical styles. Many art directors for film are used to only having like these like huge rendering budgets. So yeah, you have less for that. And then for the gaming side, you know, gaming is all about the core loop and the interactivity and oftentimes story, it can oftentimes not always be an afterthought versus in film, it's always the most important thing. So from film side, they care most about one thing and the game people care about something completely different. So getting them both to care about both interactivity and the story is challenging, but very important. And then on the gaming side, you know, there's some great method, like, you know, agile development and the prototyping over and over versus film tends to be more waterfall process. Yeah. It's also merging the production processes as well and like adjusting because there are certain parts of animation that are waterfall and you just need like when you're doing the animation. <laughs> is that like because the, the storyboard and you have to have drawings first and the story, is that the waterfall part of it or? It's the um, once you have figured out a scene, then, you know, you create, you've already drawn out the characters, you rig it, you model it then you animate and you do that in games as well but there's so much more on the prototyping the interactive parts of it and also the idea of testing as well I don't know how much testing all game industries do but I started off as a UI designer and mm -hmm. usability engineer so my entire background's on testing so at Zynga at least we use data and testing to understand how users actually behaved and so that discipline I'm finding myself bringing from the web world to mm -hmm. both the gaming and film side. So it's actually merging three industries together. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I actually want to ask you about that because part of your job is to review these VR experiences. What is sort of the list of points that you go over when you want to evaluate a VR experience? There's, first of all, how well do you understand the story do you like the story and did this have to be in VR? Because okay. if it didn't, if I could have just, the truth is stories can be told in many meanings. Like Shakespeare was great as a book, great as a play, great as a movie, and also great as animation, like The Lion King was basically. But every single medium has its own advantages. And we think the main advantage of VR is it makes you care about these characters more than you would in any of these traditional mediums because you believe that those characters are real because you're surrounded by them and you can actually act. And when they react to you, people are like, oh my gosh, it's alive, it's real. Yeah. So storytelling is all about getting you to care about the characters. That's why you want to watch the end. You want to see if they fail or if they succeed. And if in VR we can get you to care even more about that character, then we've won. Does the frame rate purely control the sickness level? No, it's not just frame rate. It's if you strafe and go side by side, that tends to make you sick too. It's because your inner ear is synced up with your eyes. And if you your eyes are telling you that you're moving real fast, but your ear doesn't see that, then it's like, oh, you must have eaten some poison and throw up. Okay. <laughs> it's like a biological response. So it makes total sense. So yes, when we are looking at it at minimum, it needs to not make you sick. You need to be able to understand the story. But then the entire part of like, do you feel so absorbed in this that you don't think about yourself? Like oftentimes you do in a game. Do I feel like I really 
bond and care about the characters and am not thinking about what does the game maker want me to do? What am I supposed to do next? We also look for um, making sure that everything in the scene directs you to look at the thing we wanted you to look at. So if people are looking off to the right when we want you to look to the left, we know we need to make changes there. And then when you come out of the experience, did you care about those characters more than you would have in a normal experience? And do you feel a bond with that character? And also, who are you as the audience? Do you, what was your role? Did you understand what your role was? Were you supposed to play a character? Are you a third-party godlike character that watches and has no impact? Oh, are you yeah. a third-party godlike character who does have impact? And was it clear to you what you were supposed to do in the piece? Yes, and I saw a snippet of Invasion of the Bunny, and I really like when you said that the way it helps you to direct where you want the person to look at it, it was inspired from a magician. Yes. We've borrowed from every single entertainment medium and science, too, because these are the wild, wild west days of VR, and there's no rules. Nobody really knows what they're doing. It's too early to, to make rule books. So Eric borrowed from the magician's handbook. If you want someone to look at you, mm -hmm. look at the audience look at it. If you want the audience to look at something else, look at that something else. Yeah. So when the bunny looks to the screen right, you're going to look at screen because you want to know what she's looking at. So it makes exactly. total sense. And when she looks at you and is coming up to sniff you, you're going to look at her back. Yeah. Um, so that was amazing. And then we borrowed from theater for The Legend of Crow because for that one, we thought about using theatrical lighting to direct your eye. And so a spotlight comes on and then you look there to see the character and in Asteroids, a piece that's going to come out soon, that one we really borrowed from science directly. I was talking about the cognitive psychology, things that we learned and put into the characters to respond to us. And I want to ask your advice to manage a creative organization. Or, for example, what we talked about earlier, where you have a mixture of the waterfall methodology with something more agile. Where I work at Microsoft, some products used to release every three years. Now things have changed because we don't release in CDs anymore. How do you make sure people are motivated if, if it can take a long time to see the actual product? I think it's creating internal milestones. So whether it's a screening or a test at Zynga, we used to have um, the very fun play score. <laughs> and you had okay. to, we would bring in tons and tons of people and they had to rate it at a certain amount for you to graduate to the next phase. So everybody inside is so excited about that. They know that's the first time people outside are going to see it. Uh, mm -hmm. So they want to make it as awesome as possible and they want to win that score. <laughs> so mm -hmm. they're also very motivated to do that. But also having um, a lot of showing the team itself, your work. So artists want their stuff to look really good and engineers, the features that they put in front of their peers. Yeah. So if you force them to show often, then they'll be motivated. Like if you, they know they're going to show on this Friday, they're going to try to make sure it's as awesome as possible because they want to impress all their peers. When you just described that, the first thing that I thought was Monster Sync, that they have this internal leaderboard of, to show how they're working. And <laughs> yes, yeah. but hopefully helping each other yeah, instead of trying yeah. to sabotage each other. Yes, or, yes. or get validation of the progress. If, if you just render this beautiful scene that is going to come out in two years, maybe people start seeing it, they appreciate your work and you get yes. feedback. And Actually, it's a big deal when we go to film festivals to have um, our team come out because 
yes, on the one hand, it's great because they get to travel to some cool film festival, but the more important part is we have them man the booth for having people watch it because it is very important to us that they are not creating this product for themselves, they're creating it for the audience and they need to see how the audience is reacting to their product so they could both have a sense of pride, like, wow, people really like it. Because as an artist, you never think the thing that you create is good enough. It, it could always be better. So first they get the positive reinforcement of seeing how people like it, but if there is anything to change or feedback, they see that firsthand and they know for the next piece that we make what they should do differently. Mm -hmm. So I think that constant connection with the audience is, is really important. And like you said earlier, there's still a lot of things that need to be defined in the space. It's fairly new. One thing I'm curious of is if we start seeing more VR animation films or shorts, do you visualize this as being a new theater where people go to and maybe it's this giant empty room or little rooms where people... I think it's all of them. I, okay. I really think it's all of them because if you think of movies, you could watch it in your TV, uh, in the theater, on IMAX, or on a plane, or on your phone. Mm -hmm. I think VR is going to revolutionize every single industry, not just entertainment. I'm especially excited, but think about education. Instead of reading about the dinosaurs, actually walking with the dinosaurs, or walking in the Roman Empire, and what that's like. Yeah. And this is only one piece of it, but I think there's, you know, with the mobile headsets, you can just be sitting on your couch and watching that at home, one-on-one. -on -one. Or you can go to a LBE or location-based experience and watch VR with your friends in a social environment. Mm -hmm. You both, you all go into the VR experience together. You see each other and you, it's like an amusement park. You play through that. But I do think for LBE, it has to be more awesome than, than something you can get at home because they're going to charge a higher ticket price. What's LBE? A location-based oh, location um, experience yeah. or environment. Yeah. So going to like an IMAX theater to experience VR or The Void or Nomadic or recently Dreamscape. Are, these are some of the new LBE experiences that are doing VR. And if you're going to get somebody to leave their home because people can be quite lazy to go yeah. out to do something, it better be something amazing that you couldn't just download on your high-end headset at home. So what they're trying to do is either make it multiplayer, so you're with your friends, or they're trying to make it so you're interacting with actual real physical objects. So if you see something in VR and you reach out to touch it, you actually touch that object yeah. in real life and get that feedback. So, But I think VR can be absolutely everywhere in every single medium. Like AMC is now putting VR in their theaters. IMAX has their IMAX VR centers. China has their VR arcades. It's just absolutely everywhere. Because the enhancement that I think of is, for example, an invasion. You're in this frozen lake. If the room could just feel freezing cold and then yeah. you're in a desert, that could enhance. <laughs> it's really funny because um, when we went to Sundance to show it, it was actually snowing outside. Oh, and people were like, awesome. oh my gosh, it feels so real. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I feel that that could be the big benefit versus doing VR in your couch and things like that. Is it too early now to talk about the economics of VR animation and films? It is because there's um, not enough content and not enough people in VR yet to actually know. Like, I can tell you something I think works now will maybe not work later. So it is early, but my method is always to experiment. That's what I learned from Zynga. You try everything, you A-B test. And so that's what we are doing as well. But I think there's so many different monetization methods. There's ad-based, there's subscription-based 
purchase, there's in-app purchase, there's just pay to download, and there's mm -hmm. also licensing of the IP. So for example, Invasion's getting turned into a feature film by Hollywood. So there's that, there's um, licensing it to theaters, there's so many different ways. There's location-based entertainment. So there are many different ways. It's a matter of there being enough people wanting to watch VR experiences to then experiment on. Yes, definitely. And before we end, I want to talk about just a portion of your time at Singa that you talked about at TechCrunch Disrupt, where I saw you, and I really liked it, and I wanted to share this with the audience. This is about promotions, and what people sometimes tell you is that, well, as long as you do the work and maybe a little more, something that you're not assigned, you'll get good reviews, your team will notice, the promotion will come, you just have to do these types of things. However, while you were at Singa, sadly, this wasn't the case for you because there was a little bit of unconscious bias and you had to do a little more than the typical things people tell you. Can you explain the story? Absolutely. Yeah. So left Singa as vice president of games, but there was a point where I was director of product or executive producer, and I wanted to be promoted to general manager. And at Zynga, the most amazing thing at Zynga is it tends to be based off of, it's a meritocracy. Mark Pincus made sure of this, so if you put out a feature and your feature did better than another person's uh, feature, then you're what gets promoted, so avoids politics. But once you get to the very high levels, there's also things that come into play, like how mm -hmm. you, you know, lead and manage and all that. I knew that my numbers were very high and our team was have very high morale and we're working on the most important uh, new game of the time, I was frustrated because I felt that I should definitely have been promoted to general manager like a year ago. And I kept on okay. mentioning this. And the wonderful thing about Zynga too is you don't have to wait a full year or cycle. It's just like whenever you deserve it, you get it. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling frustrated that a lot of other people were getting promoted and I really knew that my numbers and my team morale, all that stuff was showing that I should. And I kept on getting this different feedback from different people, like, oh, maybe I need to dress differently or speak with a lower voice and all these things. And I was getting very frustrated. Mm -hmm. And as a woman, the research shows that women tend to blame themselves when uh, something doesn't go their way versus men are more likely to blame the system. The bad thing about blaming yourself is you start losing confidence. Um, so I was starting to lose confidence after a long period of time, but I'm also very prideful and uh, driven. <laughs> driven. Yeah. Uh, I was at rage quit levels. And yeah. I even wanted to apply to work on The Hobbit in New Zealand, but they don't allow for foreign staff, oh, production staff. Awesome. But I tried to even apply. I was like, I would rather go get paid minimum wage. Yeah. <laughs> like getting people coffee yeah. on The Hobbit than suffer this. But Which is what you did to go to Pixar because you moved to yes, Pixar. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, but I... One last-ditch effort, I emailed my business school professor, uh, Felix Oberholzer-Gee at Harvard Business School. He emailed me all these articles about women in leadership, and a lot of these articles talked about how women often get, times get criticized on style versus men get talked about like performance and their future potential. And I printed them out, I highlighted the parts that I felt were relevant, and I handed it to my boss. And he, like, I would not feel comfortable doing this with most people, but my boss was the most amazing boss ever. I 
really admire him. And to this day, he's one of my advisors. And I felt so comfortable with him that I felt like I can do this. Mm -hmm. He read it. And then after a few days, he came back to me and he said, hey, actually, it's not necessarily these articles, but I realized the reason I hadn't promoted you is because this is um, the most important game of the company. It's the crown jewel. And I felt that if you were two levels above what you should be, then no one would question when I promoted you. And if I promoted you now, even though you deserve it, because you're a woman, I feel protective of you. I didn't want you to have to be beaten up by the sharks. But I realized that if I were a man, I wouldn't feel protective of you. I would have just promoted you and let you swim with the sharks and he immediately fixed it and this is when I realized that it wasn't anybody's fault like I couldn't sit there and blame it wasn't his fault he didn't know because we are all unconsciously biased including women and we don't realize these things and so as soon as I educated him he immediately changed and this is when I realized that education of men is as important, if not more important than educating women, because men, if they know, they change. So it's up Mm -hmm. to us to help educate, especially since a lot of the literature for women is telling us how to be more like men. And I don't think that's fair because there's some really great things about being a woman. So I feel like men should meet us halfway, but they need to understand and know it in order to to meet us halfway. But I was so happy after that, after I got promoted, then like Zynga super, I ran women at Zynga is very supportive of women. And um, Don Metric, who came in as CEO, even uh, let me host all these HBS women events. And that's when I I was inspired to then lead women at Zynga because I like, oh, my experience, this is what happened. I want to help other women here. And like Zynga was super supportive of it. And so it really changed and I was very happy with their reaction. And you brought up an important point because right now people come from many different backgrounds and cultures and they already have these ideas. So what you did was very important because you pointed it out and with data indicated this is what's going on, and then that person had sort of a wake-up call, I guess how you would say it, and realized they were making a mistake, and then they can later communicate that to their peers, their male peers, like, make sure you're you're not doing this, or yeah. some, some of the red flags and things like that. Yes, but I will say... The reason why I was able to do it is because I had such a good relationship with my boss. And I think that I was nervous before that to bring up the woman card. You don't want it. You're like, maybe it is me. Maybe it's not the system. But after enough feedback, that's why I went to data because I was like, is it me Mm -hmm. or is it not? And that's why I like data because Zynga trained me like data. So that's where I went to look for the research to to make sure because, and I probably should have done it earlier, but I was just didn't want to play that card. So I want to be absolutely sure it was that before I did it. Yeah. Um, but I'm really happy I did because it did create change. All right. Well, Maureen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It was great having you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.